This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, July 17th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Virginia Allen. New York City has seen a 53.5% increase in shootings and a 27% increase in murders this year. Giancarlo Canaparo, Heritage Foundation Legal Fellow, joins the podcast to discuss some of the reasons the city has seen a surge in violent crime and what should be done to stop the chaos. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy announced Thursday a bill to protect monuments from protesters. Public monuments are indispensable because they tell the American story. It is wrong to erase our history, McCarthy said in a statement via the Daily Caller. Republicans Jim Jordan of Ohio and Sam Graves of Missouri have also signed on to the bill. McCarthy added, we should be learning from it. Instead, left-wing mobs in cities across the country are destroying statues of General Grant, St. Sarah, Christopher Columbus, and abolitionists. This is lawlessness in its purest form and most unacceptable form. In the week since the death of George Floyd, who died in police custody in Minneapolis on May 25th, protesters have torn down or attempted to tear down statues of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant, a Union general turned president, and even Presidents Washington and Lincoln, among others. There is evidence that Russia is trying to steal information about a COVID-19 vaccine from the U.S., U.K., and Canada. The hacking group known as APT29, or Cozy Bear, is believed to operate within Russia's security services and appears to have launched a cyber attack against the three countries in order to steal vaccine research. The UK's National Cyber Security Center reported that Russian cyber actors are targeting organizations involved in coronavirus vaccine development. And the center's director of operations, Paul Chichester, cautioned in a statement, we would urge organizations to familiarize themselves with the advice we have published to help defend their networks. Ann Neuberger, the NSA's cybersecurity director, said in a statement that APT-29 has a long history of targeting governmental, diplomatic, think tank, healthcare, and energy organizations for intelligence gain. So we encourage everyone to take this threat seriously. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has put his foot down on the mandating of masks. In a tweet, Candace Bros, a spokesperson for Kemp, said... Previous executive orders, and now this order, state no local action can be more or less restrictive than ours. We have explained that local mask mandates are unenforceable. The governor continues to strongly encourage Georgians to wear masks in public. The Wednesday executive order keeps towns and cities in Georgia from mandating masks, but says those who live in the state and those visiting are strongly encouraged to wear face coverings as practicable, with the exception of exercising, eating, or drinking. Chad Woof, the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, has called out Portland, Oregon's leaders 
for failing to maintain order in the city amid protests and riots in the wake of George Floyd's death. In a statement released Thursday, Wolf wrote, The city of Portland has been under siege for 47 straight days by a violent mob, while local political leaders refuse to restore order to protect their city. Each night, lawless anarchists destroy and desecrate property, including the federal courthouse, and attack the brave law enforcement officers protecting it. Wolf concluded his statement writing, I reiterate the department's offer to assist local and state leaders to bring an end to the violence perpetuated by anarchists. The Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice have sent officers to Portland to guard the courthouse and other federal buildings in an effort to mitigate further damage. Violence between rioters and the federal officials have led to increased tensions between local and federal leaders. In a tweet thread on Tuesday, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler said, I told the acting secretary that my biggest immediate concern is the violence federal officials brought on our streets in recent days and the life-threatening tactics his agents use. We do not need or want their help. The biggest thing they can do is stay inside their building or leave Portland altogether. Our goal is to end these violent demonstrations quickly and safely, and in the meantime, I ask him to clean up the graffiti on local federal facilities. Now stay tuned for my conversation with John Carlo Canaparo, Heritage Foundation Legal Fellow, as we discuss the violent crime surge in New York City. Conservative women, conservative feminists, it's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. I am joined by John Carlo Canaparo, Heritage Foundation Legal Fellow. John Carlo, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Virginia. Well, you know, I wish that we were here to talk about happier news today, but we are discussing really the, the frighteningly high spike in violent crime in New York City. Last weekend was a really tragic weekend in New York City. Could you begin by just telling us a little bit about what happened last weekend? Sure. Let me, I'll start by telling you the story of uh, Devel Gardner. Devel was one years old. He was with uh, family and friends at a neighborhood barbecue uh, when unknown assailants drove up, uh, hopped out of their car and opened fire on the barbecue. They hit three men, wounding them. Thankfully, all of them seemed to be fine, but Devel died uh, of his wounds. The same day, two other children, ages 12 and 15, were shot in Brooklyn and Harlan. And uh, they were among a total of 64 people shot in New York just this last weekend. Wow. Well, and sadly, Giancarlo, this is a trend that we're seeing right now in New York City. So far this year, New York has seen a 53.5 increase in shootings and a 20 
7% increase in murders. And you just wrote a, a sobering but really fantastic piece for the Daily Signal about this crime surge. Could you just kind of give us the big picture of what is going on in New York City right now as it relates to this rise in violent crime? Yeah, sure. So, so far, uh, as of the last time that the NYPD put out stats, which was on the 5th of this month, we've seen 528 shootings uh, in New York. Like you said, th these numbers are up uh, big time, 50% uh, shooting, 63 shooting victims, almost 30% increase in murders just this year. Um, uh, we've seen, you know, this comes following uh, a lot of anti-police protests and riots, as well as the New York City's decision to disband the police force's anti-crime unit. Um, and New York is not alone in this. Uh, we are seeing this trend in a lot of big cities. Chicago is on track to have its most violent year since the mid-90s. Um, we've seen in that city 336 murders as of July 2nd. So this is... Um, a really distressing trend of violence throughout America's big cities. So you mentioned that the NYPD, they dismantled their anti-crime unit. What did this unit actually do and what is not happening in New York City right now because of it being disbanded? Sure. Uh, so the anti-crime unit, is, or was, um, undercover plainclothes cops assigned to each uh, precinct and city housing. Uh, they combated, uh, they went after illegal guns, uh, local crime sprees, and focused on burglaries. Um, incidentally, we're, we've seen that burglaries are up 45% in New York this year so far. So the reason that they were disbanded, I think, is because that they were involved in more police shootings than other departments uh, by the nature of what they did, focusing on violent crimes and guns. Um so, but what you've seen then is that the New York Police Department is now deprived of uh, basically its its first responders to uh, the most violent types of crimes. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that if if these are the police officers, like you say, that are in plain clothes and living in the communities, probably ninety nine percent of the time they're the first ones that are able to be on those crime scenes and and respond. Right, exactly right. They're they're the officers who are going to be there before uh, people know that the police are there or coming, and so they're going to be in a lot hotter situations than the average officer who comes in, uh, uh, sirens blazing, um, after an incident has uh, commenced or finished. Okay, wow. So right now there's there's a lot of finger pointing going on in the Big mm -hmm. Apple with Mayor Bill de Blasio saying it's the courts and the courts saying no, it's de Blasio and the NYPD and everyone is blaming someone else. So who should actually be held accountable and responsible for this massive crime spike? Boy, there's really no share or, or no shortage of, of people to blame. Um, we saw earlier this year that... Um, New York uh, undertook some criminal justice reforms, including its, um, I, I think the consensus in now is that its, its bail reform was somewhat disastrous. It has uh, it released a lot of uh, felons uh, for COVID-19 to, to get them out of prisons because those were vulnerable populations. Uh, and we see that there are elements to this to these Black Lives Matter protests um, 
which are more than just a cry for uh, justice. There is a movement, a Marxist anti-police, anti-establishment movement behind this motto, uh, which has been encouraging uh, violence and a, a um, culture of lawlessness. And we've seen that the New York Police Department uh, has, in some cases, not engaged, not uh, put its foot down which means that people slowly or rather quickly actually learn that there are not consequences to criminal action. And so you've got this culture of, uh, of lawlessness and violence that is spinning out of control in New York. And to see this firsthand, you can go online and there, I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands of videos, really disturbing videos of just violent lawlessness going on. The sort of thing that you know, a healthy society does not glorify. To what extent do you think COVID-19 should be factored into this to where you, know, you kind of have a lot of people out of work or you know maybe have less work and they're bored or they're restless and you know are are they maybe now more prone to get involved in criminal activity? Yeah, it's it's hard for me to say to what extent COVID-19 is affecting this, but I think you I mean it makes sense intuitively to me, at least, that with the release of criminals from, from jails for COVID-19 purposes and the fact that people are uh, not otherwise engaged productively with jobs or what have you, it makes sense to me. It, uh, th these are factors that come together and seem to be uh, causing this problem. Yeah. Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose uh, district includes parts of the Bronx and Queens, she made a very interesting comment that the spike in crime was due to poverty and people not being able to feed their families, so they're stealing bread. What does this comment reveal about just how out of touch Representative Ocasio-Cortez and others, uh, radical leaders on the left, are really uh, out of touch with reality? Sure. Well, let me start first. Let me let me walk through how this conversation started because there's a, a timeline here that that affects how people are talking about this. So uh, she gets on a video and she says, "Well, maybe the the crime, the rising crime, has to do with, uh, like you said, people feeling the need to shoplift some bread or go hungry," was her quote, uh, and that that statement taken at face value uh, is belied by the evidence, right? This is not shoplifting. We've seen a uh, 53% rise in shootings. We've seen murders on the rise. Uh, burglary is on the rise. And uh, to be clear, burglary, an increase in people uh, shoplifting for bread would not lead to a rise in burglary stats because New York charges shoplifting as larceny. Now, larceny uh, stats are actually down in New York. Petite larceny, meaning anything less than $1,000, is down 7.5%. Grand larceny for bigger thefts, down 20%. So shoplifting is not uh, what's attributing or what's leading to this rise in violent crimes. So when she, was, when she was presented with these facts and got a lot of pushback, she did what uh, she and a lot of politicians often do, which is to retreat from the specific claim into a general a generality. And she said, Republicans are just all upset that I'm connecting the dots between crime and poverty. Is what she said. Well, that's gaslighting, pure and simple, right? Because if this was just about poverty, 
we would expect to see that month over month recently, these crime stats would be going down because as the economies have slowly reopened, we've seen uh, the unemployment levels drop quite dramatically. In fact, by the end of July, uh, unemployment dropped about 5%. Uh, it's still very high. It's still too high, hovering around 11%, but down significantly. So if her explanation, crime, poverty, uh, related was the explanation here, we'd expect to see month over month a drop. But in fact, what we've seen is month over month, 165% more shootings, 204% more shooting victims, and 21% more murders month over month. So that causality is backwards. So even if you know she's allowed to retreat away from her specific claim that this is shoplifting, her general claim that this is just the relationship between crime and poverty doesn't explain what's going on. Wow. Well, and I mean, New York has showed us that, you know, defunding parts of your police department, it, it doesn't work. It only leads to more chaos, more crime. But, you know, it's it's obvious after the death of George Floyd at the hand of police officer Derek Chauvin that, you know, reforms do need to take place and do need to happen. So how should cities and communities across America respond to the death of George Floyd so that another man or woman is not wrongfully killed at the hands of a police officer? So what we need to see from reformists is a commitment to reform based on what we actually know and not just what we think or feel we know about how police behave. And uh, we need targeted reforms that prevent or punish or eliminate bad actors from within the police forces. But to paint with a broad brush and to simply disband, defund, or eliminate police forces uh, will only encourage bad actors in the community to do what they're going to do with impunity. Giancarlo, to what extent is this a state and local level issue versus something that Congress should take action on? Oh, it's almost exclusively a state and local issue because the vast, vast majority of police uh, citizen interactions are at the state and local level. Federal police forces are, are not out there on the street dealing with people on a day-to-day -day basis. Every community is going to have different needs. Communities that are quieter, communities that have a lot more police presence. These are all, uh, they're going to have different needs and considerations and how each community interacts with its police force is a deeply uh, local uh, decision. Yeah, interesting. So New York had terrible crime in, in the 1970s and Mayor Rudy Giuliani is largely credited with cleaning up crime in the 90s, although uh, his methods have been attacked by some. What is New York City's history of crime? So in a city like New York, it's really easy for somebody to get lost in the crowd. And that dynamic, that mentality uh, can lend itself well to the, in some people, the conception that, well, I can commit crime because I won't get caught. What big cities like New York and Chicago need is a police presence that is there, that's visible, that's engaged and involved with the community uh, to cultivate not only a sense that police are there for our protection, for you know the vast majority of people who are good and law-abiding citizens, but also to cultivate amongst people who are not, that they are not going to get away with uh, criminal behavior. So if... If you could sit down with some of New York City's leaders today and say, hey, guys, this is really what we need to implement 
first today, right now. This is what needs to change in order uh, to, you know, strengthen that police force and bring this crime surge down. What would you say to them? Uh, A couple things. Number one, again, I would just reiterate that to tackle these issues, we need to be going at it from a data-driven approach. What do we actually know and not listen to social activists who are espousing a, a philosophy that is not necessarily tied to the facts, number one. Number two, there are going to be bad actors within the police forces, like there are bad actors everywhere. They need to. We need to system where they can be found out and punished. Now, one of the problems uh, that police forces face is, as with teachers at other unions, a union can can create a lot of uh, stickiness for bad actors in the police force that they can't be fired or they can't be removed uh, from the beat. So those sort of concerns need to be whittled down. On the on the other side of the extreme, though, you can't just get rid of your police forces in an overcorrection uh, because there are always going to be bad actors in the community as well. So you've got to find that balance. You've got the you need the police engaged with the community, building trust with the community, present in the community. But you can't divorce from that relationship the fact that police are necessary. Most police are good, hardworking people who are just trying to do their jobs. We encourage all of our listeners to follow John Carlo's work and follow him on Twitter at G Canaparo. And John Carlo, thank you so much for your time today. Just really appreciate your insight on this My really important subject. My pleasure. Thanks, Virginia. And that will do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts and give us your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.